0: Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 181. Today is April 18th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at InvestableWealth.com. In today's episode, I want to focus on one of the primary reasons why I remain concerned about the economy. It has to do with oil production and the effect on the petrodollar on the overall global economy. It's not specifically related to the continued glut of oil and the imbalance that we see in in global oil supplies. it's, It's related to that indirectly, but there's a bigger issue here. That's what I want to talk about today, and it's one of the primary reasons why I still remain very concerned about this market and why I'm still primarily in cash and really why I think over the course of my investing career, why I've never been more reluctant to jump into the market. I really think that we're potentially on thin ice where red caution flags are being waved. And although I'm not concerned about a global economic meltdown, I do remain concerned that there's another leg down, some type of a reset or readjustment that needs to occur here Before this seven-year bull market that is the second longest in history, before this can really go on and break out and go above the highs that were achieved last year around, you know, May, June, July timeframe, I'm very skeptical that the market can get above those levels without some type of longer-lasting and more systemic correction, and a lot of that has to do with where we are with oil. The other major concern I have is the continued slowdown in China. That is also somewhat related to the lower oil prices, the overall glut in oil, and then more in in particular, the overall glut and collapse in commodity prices. I'm not going to get into that in this episode. We've talked about that before. We'll probably come back and and talk about it in more detail. But today, I really do want to focus on U.S. oil production, what that has to do with petrodollars, and why I'm so concerned about the global economy. Before I jump into today's topic, I do want to thank all of you that continue to send your questions and comments into me. I appreciate those of you that have nudged me along as I've been slack in getting out podcasting content here in recent weeks. For me and my uh, private business interests, this is not only the end of the quarter, but also the time of year when I have to do my annual submissions for re-licensing. And, of course, tax season and all those other things, uh, as well as my travel schedule has picked up. And I've also tried to uh, tweak some of the software programs that I use to, uh, to track my investments. That never goes easy whenever you implement a new software package. Oh, and by the way, speaking of software, this is not software specific, but it is related uh, somewhat to, to a change I had to make. Uh, The the service provider I was using for the emails that would go out if you subscribed to either the blogs over at InvestableWealth.com or the podcast notices at Wellsteading.com. Well, the service I was using had some changes, and so I've switched over. I'm now using Amazon Web Services. I think we'll get better service out of them. Time will tell. In the meantime, I did put out a blog post at investablewealth.com on Friday. I know many of you didn't uh, receive that. I did go in and uploaded additional subscriber names to that service. So hopefully that'll be corrected in the future. I guess just as a housekeeping item, I want to say that if you're subscribed to either wealthsteading.com or investablewealth.com and you're not receiving the updates that you think you should be, go ahead and get in touch with me and then I'll manually go in and see if I can manipulate that. Because of spam filters and other things that get bounced back, there's only so much I can do. But if you do want to be on the list, I'll do what I can to make sure that that service is provided to you. And then also, for those of you that maybe in the past had unsubscribed and you're still getting notifications or they're starting again, bear with me on this. Again, because I'm changing services, some names that maybe should be off the rolls or back on, I've tried to go in and manually take care of all those that I'm aware of. So hey, enough of all that. Let's jump into the topic, and this episode is really related to the blog post that I sent out over at InvestableWealth.com on Friday. So if you're not subscribed to that, you want to follow along with the chart that I generated, go over to Investiblewealth.com, look under Observations and Commentary. You'll see the most recent post there, and it's entitled, It's Still All About Oil. Before I get into the nuts and bolts of this and I talk about some numbers, I want to try and tell you a a story or illustrate the point through analogy. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I don't have a perfect analogy, but let me do the best I can. Here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine that you've been leasing some property since the 1970s. Maybe there's a house on there that you're renting or whatever. But what I want you to focus on is the fact that you're leasing this property. And one of the main reasons you're doing that is because the land is highly fertile and you're able to grow an annual garden in abundance. And you have fruit trees and nut trees and just all kinds of annuals and perennials that grow very well. One of the main reasons, if not the key reason, that you're able to have such a lush garden and a big food forest is because you don't have to irrigate this property. You're receiving your irrigation for free because the landlord or the property holder that you're leasing this piece of land from, his property is adjacent to yours and he has a huge irrigation system that basically results in a great deal, if not maybe 50% of the water that he's using to irrigate his property well, it runs off and runs onto your property and so you're able to capture that and free of charge you're able to irrigate this large lot now this has been going on since the nineteen seventies so it's something that you're used to it's something that you've built into your overall economic model that you can you know grow food and farm this property and it doesn't cost you anything in terms of water rights or an irrigation cost and so that's one of the main reasons that you've continued to lease this property Now, while this has been going on for a good 40 years, what you've been noticing lately is that your crops and your garden, they're not doing so well. Your tomato plants and your other annuals, they're starting to droop. Your fruit trees and your nut trees and your other foliage, they're just really looking distressed. And as you walk through your garden and your food forest and you're trying to discern the problem, you realize that your water source is drying up and you're not sure why because you look over at your neighbor's property your landlord that normally all that runoff comes from and you see that his property is still lush and all of his plants are growing and doing very well so you're not sure what's going on well you investigate this further and you find out that your landlord put in a drip irrigation system and so he's using maybe ten or twenty percent of the amount of water that he used to be using But because it's drip irrigation, it's going specifically to the plants where it's needed, and there's virtually no runoff of his property. So his irrigation and water bill has gone down. That's paid for the investment that he had to make to put in the drip irrigation system. Unfortunately, though, what it means to you is that your plants are dying, the moisture in the ground is evaporating, and your overall garden is deteriorating. So that's devastating to you, and it also means that eventually you're going to be moving off that property and no longer leasing it because you can't grow the the food that you're required to grow and the food that you've been growing for the last 40 years. That creates a lot of uncertainty and volatility in your lifestyle. And although your landlord doesn't realize it yet, the unintended consequence of him making the capital investment to put in the drip irrigation system and to reduce his water bill, that is going to cause him to lose you as a renter. And so consequently, his monthly cash flow is going to decrease because you're no longer going to lease or rent that property from him. And then at the end of the day, he's probably going to realize that the investment that he made in that more efficient irrigation system is costing him more than he realized because he didn't factor in the the fact that he was going to lose you as a renter. Okay, you get the picture I'm trying to draw here. I want to try and illustrate that point to you, that you have multiple parties involved involved. You have capital investment that's been made, and then you also have this productivity cycle. In the example I'm using, I'm using it as a garden or a food forest, something that's taken place and been relied upon as a value source since the 1970s, so well over 40 years. However, all that system is currently breaking down, and it's in flux, and it's causing a lot of volatility. So what the heck does that have to do with global economic trade and petrodollars and the overall economy and why I'm so concerned about the stock market? Well, here's the bottom line. The global oil supply-demand curve has been out of balance or out of kilter for about two years now. Last year, there was about 2% more supply than demand. Now, so far this year, we're down to about 1% more supply than demand. That's why we've seen oil prices somewhat stabilize and are hovering around $40 a barrel. You heard me say several weeks ago or maybe a month or two ago that I wasn't believing that OPEC was going to be able to cap production and get oil prices consistently higher because all they were doing was talking, but they really weren't going to act on that talk. Well, they just had their meeting this past weekend in Doha. We know that they are not going to act on it. And so we have to wait and see the ultimate effect that that has. I am still betting on the fact that I think that oil prices are going to go lower. The reason that's important is because there's been a correlation with the stock market, with the U.S. stock market anyways. As oil prices have come back up, equity prices, the U.S. stock market has gone up as well. So my thesis is is that if we see another dip in oil prices that the U.S. stock market will turn tail and those prices will come down as well. There's a lot of reasons for this, but one key reason is the fear of threats and defaults that will occur if oil companies and energy related companies go out of business. We're starting to see a lot of those dominoes fall now with the coal producers. Now, the marginal coal producers, they went out of business a long time ago. We're now starting to see the major blue-chip type coal producers struggling and having to go bankrupt and reorganize. I'm not fearful that that's going to happen with the major energy producers. People like Shell and ExxonMobil and Chevron, they're going to weather the storm. But the mid-tier and the very risky marginal producers, I believe there's a lot of pain there that hasn't occurred yet almost 80% of active oil wells have been either mothballed or shut down. And I'm specifically referring here to the United States. So that's why we're starting to see a decrease in United States oil production. But what's causing me to have caution or concern is that although we've seen, like I said, nearly 80% of oil wells shut down, that's well over 2,000, we're not seeing a corresponding increase in bankruptcies or default on energy loans that comes anywhere near to that 80% number. And so I think that pain has to eventually be felt. Now, perhaps we can paper over it. Maybe loans can be extended and things will work out. But remember back to 2008. The only reason we got out of that housing crisis is because the Federal Reserve expanded their balance sheet and printed something in the neighborhood of $3 trillion dollars to keep capital and liquidity flowing in the banking system. Now, I don't think that the United States' bad debt in the energy sector will be as bad as what we saw in the housing bubble of 2008, but it could be on a global basis when you factor in all the economies that rely so heavily on oil production. All the OPEC countries, Russia, countries in South America like Venezuela, countries in Africa like Nigeria. And then, even though you wouldn't necessarily think about it, countries right here in North America like Canada and Mexico derive a great deal of their GDP from oil production. And so until that supply demand of petroleum products can get back in line, I think there's still a great deal uh, overshadowing, a lot of overhang with the threat of defaults and bankruptcies, which haven't taken place yet. And if they do, they're going to have an impact on not only United States stock markets, but the overall global economy and the global stock market, particularly emerging markets and commodity type oil type exporting countries. Now, the next thing that worries me, and this gets back to the renter that was receiving all the runoff from his landlord's garden. And this has to do with the concept of petrodollars and the lack of U.S. dollars in the overall global economy. One of the reasons we haven't seen a major increase in inflation, despite all the Federal Reserve money printing and all the low-interest loans that are out there, and, and there's many reasons for this, this is just one factor of it, but despite all that money that appears to be flowing, there is actually a large decrease in the amount of U.S. dollars that are circulating on a global basis. And so this is why I try to draw that analogy with the water that was running off of the landlord's garden and coming onto the neighbor's property and causing their soil to be so productive and fertile and and allowing them to grow their own big garden and their own large food forest. You see, that's what happens when United States dollars leave our country and go overseas. Now, that may not be good for you if you're a U.S. worker. That's not necessarily good for you, but it is good for the global economy. The International Monetary Fund just recently has come back, and as they've done for the last seven or eight years, they downgraded global GDP, and I think they're saying now it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of a little more than 3% one of the main reasons for that is that there's not enough U.S. dollars that are in the global economy to be able to grease the skids and cause global trade. A primary reason for that is the U.S. oil production that's taken place since about 2008. You see, if you go back to, let's say, pre-2005, the United States was producing something less than, let's call it, 5 million barrels a day. Now, last year in 2015, I believe it was around April, at the peak of U.S. oil production, and this is mostly because of the shale oil revolution that's going on, the U.S. was producing something like 9.8, or call it 10 million barrels a day. And so in less than a decade, using rough numbers, we can just say that U.S. oil production pretty much doubled. And at the same time, our consumption hasn't doubled. And that's because of renewables and more efficient use of energy. You know, if you look back to the 1970s, the average American family was spending about 8% of their income on energy. Today, we're spending about 5%. So while that lower energy cost or lower energy use is good for the overall consumer, it's not good for the elements of the economy that are energy producers. And so if you're somebody like OPEC, you know, where you're Saudi Arabia or where you're a country like Russia, where 50% of your GDP comes from oil revenues, well these last seven or eight years have not been so good for you so when it comes to this oil glut that's going on where we have excess oil capacity of somewhere around one to two percent that's come as a result number one from the increase in US oil production which again is mostly the shale oil revolution that's taken place since around 2008 that's because of the technologies of fracking and horizontal drilling Basically, oil production, exploration, all those things becoming more productive. That's a major factor. The fact that consumption has either gone down or has stabilized because our vehicles get better miles per gallon or we're driving less or because of alternative energy like wind energy or solar energy causing us to use less things like heating oil. Those are two major things that are affecting the need for the United States to import energy into our country. And so the petroleum producers, like Saudi Arabia, like Russia, like Canada, like Mexico, like Venezuela, like Nigeria, they are exporting less gallons of oil into the U.S. That means that their revenues, their disposable income, are going down. And then you add another factor to that. Not only is the U.S. importing less oil, but we're also paying less for it. Right now, people in the energy industry, they're all excited that we're getting $40 a barrel for oil. Just go back to 2014. That year, the high for oil was something like $115 a barrel. Think back to 2008 when oil peaked out around $145 or $147 a barrel. Right now, people are excited about $40. And so, even if we weren't using less, and even if we weren't producing more, these exporting countries would still be having a problem because the price has come down so low. The bottom line is that these petroleum exporting countries are receiving less U.S. dollars for their products. And that dollar is generally referred to as a petrodollar. It's called that because it represents the unit or the amount of US dollars that go to these petroleum exporting nations and it's really just an accounting feature that there really isn't something that's a petrodollar. It would be similar to calling money that that buys Chinese exports a China dollar. Okay, so it's, it's not that it's its own separate currency it's just a way of looking at global trade and so there are less US petrodollars in circulation because there is less U.S. dollars leaving the United States economy and going into Russia or Venezuela or United Arab Emirates or Canada or Mexico or whatever other country we were buying oil from that either now we are not buying oil from, or if we are still importing their oil, we're only paying $40 a barrel for it and not $100 a barrel. Now again, while you as an individual consumer are happy about that, This has really had devastating effects on the overall global trade. Well, why is that? Well, it's just like a worker that gets laid off. If they lose their job or they end up working less hours, then they don't have as much pay, and so they have less discretionary income to buy products and services with. It's the same way with these exporting countries, whether it be Canada or whether it be Saudi Arabia. They're taking in a whole lot less income than they did before, and so they have to tighten their belt. They have to reduce their spending budgets. And whether that be government spending or social spending, or whether it just be infrastructure spending or individual consumer spending, they're making less, so that means that they have to spend less. And then likewise, the governments and those sovereign wealth funds also have to cut back. So that means that they can't buy as much software from Microsoft or they can't buy as many iPads or iPhones from Apple or they can't buy as many lobsters from Maine or salmon from Alaska. I mean, whatever they were purchasing, whether it was American products or Chinese imports or Toyotas from Japan, whatever these petrodollars were going to purchase, all of that consumption has been reduced. And thus, that's why we see an overall global slowdown. And that's why I remain very concerned not only about the United States stock market, but also about emerging markets and the markets around the globe. If people are cutting back, then that means that eventually corporate profits and incremental sales have to be reduced. This is a problem that we didn't get into overnight, and I don't think that we can easily get out of it. And again, this oil glut or this lack of petrodollars is only one factor. You can make a similar argument about what's going on with the slowdown in China, and that's really what's had the big impact on the collapse in commodity prices because China is not buying as much coal or iron ore or Buick automobiles or you know whatever they used to be buying, they're just not buying as much now. Money is fungible, and so a slowdown in one sector of the economy can have a trickle-through effect and affect all elements of the economy. And although our economy is doing very well here in the United States, just like in the analogy that I drew when I talked about the, the landowner that put in the drip irrigation system, yeah, initially his garden still looks like it's growing and doing fine, and the investment that he made in that drip irrigation system, it looks like it's paying dividends now. But once he loses his renter, he's going to find out that his monthly cash flow declines. That decline is what we're seeing across the globe because of the reduction in U.S. petrodollars. Just to give you an example of this, Saudi Arabia saw their foreign reserve currencies decline by about $138 billion last year. That means that they're spending less on everything. To illustrate that point, if you pay attention to the news and you look at alternative news type channels, you have noticed that last week Al Jazeera America TV was taken off the air. Well it wasn't taken off the air because it lost ad revenue. It was never generating enough ad revenue to to, uh, justify its existence to begin with. It was being sponsored by money from Saudi Arabia. That money has dried up and so consequently they pulled the plug on Al Jazeera. I want to emphasize this is not only impacting the OPEC nations. Russia, Canada, Mexico, Uh, Norway, Brazil. These are all countries that are major oil exporters and they're being affected by the lack of U.S. petrodollars in circulation. Now you may have recently seen the headlines that say that Saudi Arabians are threatening to pull their money, their assets out of the U.S. if this 9-11 commission passes legislation that allows Saudi Arabia to be liable for things that happened during the terrorist attacks in in, uh, September 11th. I'm not very much worried about that at this point. What concerns me more is that Saudi Arabia, like I just mentioned, they've lost $138 billion in their foreign reserves. That's money that had to be liquidated by selling land or by selling United States stocks or by selling United States treasuries so that they could raise cash and capital to make up for the petrodollars that they're not taking in. If we continue to see this imbalance of supply and demand on oil, then reserves are going to dry up in places like Saudi Arabia, and they're going to have to sell more of their U.S. stocks. We'll see this happen not only with OPEC, but with many sovereign wealth funds. It could be devastating to the United States stock market. Now, I want to emphasize here I'm not being alarmist. I'm not worried about the sky falling. I don't think we're going to have an economic collapse or meltdown. I don't think that you should go out and put all your money in gold and silver. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm simply saying that we're still in a very fragile recovery. The warning signs are all around us. We can see it in the price of oil. We can see it in the price of other commodities. We can see it in the valuations that people are willing to pay to get into the stock market because they have to seek additional risk because they're not receiving compensation from things like normal interest. These are all problems that could culminate into a perfect storm and in my opinion, could make the stock market go lower. Now for those of you that like charts and like hard specific numbers, go over to investablewealth.com, look under observations and commentary, you'll see that article entitled, It's Still All About Oil. Scroll down, look at the chart, I show US petrodollars in circulation, from about 1980 until the present. Now this is an approximate number that I've calculated and I want to stress here it's US petrodollars only so it's not counting China dollars that are buying petros or anything else it's only looking at at the US petrodollars this would be a larger magnitude if you factored in all the economies but what I just want to do is make the point that the amount of US petrodollars that are in circulation are at about the lowest point that they've been in since about 2002 Take a look at that chart. I think it's very revealing. If nothing else, that chart should help you better understand why we're in a global slowdown and why, in my opinion, it's not about to correct anytime soon. I think that there are still excellent opportunities in the stock market and more opportunities to come this year. I just want to be very discriminatory with where I put my money and I protect my assets should there be a further pullback. Well, that'll finish it up for today's episode. Before I do close out, though, I want to acknowledge that my favorite country-western singer, Merle Haggard, passed away. He died on his 79th birthday on April 6th. If you've listened to the well Setting Podcast for any length of time, you know that I play a lot of Merle's songs. He will be missed, but fortunately for us, he's left us something close to 50 years of music that he's consistently created Um, Although it's all been country music, there's really been a lot of different genres and different evolution of of his music over the years. What I really like about Merle is what a hard worker he was. You know, he was even still touring at at age 79. In fact, he was scheduled to be in Nevada in February. I was going to take my wife to see him for her birthday, but that's when he became sick with pneumonia and had to cancel his tours and, and now eventually has passed away. So, Merle, you'll be missed as I thought about closing out with one of my favorite songs. I couldn't pick just one that I liked, and so what I decided I'd do is I thought the best way to show a tribute to Merle Haggard was to play a song that he wrote to memorialize his friend, Johnny Cash. So we'll close out with Merle,